One of my favorite quotes is from a poem by uh, the poet Paul Pryor. He used to say, remember, you are only one, but you are one. You cannot do everything, but you can do something. And I think sometimes we can really be overwhelmed by the crisis that we see, by the scale of things, and we think we cannot really make a difference. But I really believe in the collectively, the community work, that people come together, everybody can contribute something, and then together do something big. So that has been my motivation. But I think now I really want to try to use my experiences and to advance certain things that I see that would really help the system work much better. Welcome back to the Rethinking Development Podcast. My name is Safa and I'm your host. Thank you for joining me as we speak with and learn from practitioners of all career stages and organizational affiliations around the world. In our conversations, we aim to rethink ethical behavior and best practices through the lived experiences and personal reflections of different practitioners. Our guest today is Wafa Saeed. Wafa has 20 years of humanitarian work experience in complex settings. Currently, she's the Deputy Director in the Operations and Advocacy Division covering Eastern and Southern Africa at UNOCHA, the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. She started her career working with the WFP in her native country of Sudan. She then worked with OCHA as a humanitarian affairs officer in Somalia and later as deputy head of office in Syria. She has also worked with UNICEF as chief of field officer in Somalia, Indonesia, and Pakistan, and later as chief of field operations in Syria. She holds a Master of Architecture degree from the Catholic University Leuven in Belgium and a Master's of Physical Planning from the University of Khartoum. Prior to joining the UN, Wafa worked as a lecturer at the University of Khartoum and as an architect in the private sector. Wafa, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much, Safa, and thank you so much for the opportunity to chat with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for speaking with us. So to begin the conversation, could you share a bit more about how you first began to work in this field and how was it that you transitioned from working in architecture or at the University of Khartoum to beginning to work with WFP in Sudan? I think when I was at intermediate school, I was about 13 years old, I came across the charter of the UN. And I recall I read, we, the people of the United Nations, determined to reaffirm faith in the fundamental human rights, the dignity and the worth of the human person. And I was just so much drawn to that. And I told myself at that time, you know, I would really love to work for the United Nations. So it was like a dream for me. And as you mentioned, I studied architecture and I did urban planning and I was always drawn to the work at the community level. So while I was teaching at the university, I was also working as a volunteer with an organization called the Sudanese Environment Conservation Society. And that was my introduction to work at the community level. So we were working in formal settlements. And also when I was a student, a large part, we do some projects. I was very much drawn to work at community level and social work. And I was thinking that eventually maybe I would work with UN Habitat, which is the organization of the UN that deals with urban settlements and settings. And I was applying for different jobs. So I would always bring the newspaper when I finish my master and every day look at job adverts and try to apply for positions. And then I got this position, opportunity to join WFP as a program assistant. 
And actually at that time, my late father was quite disappointed because he was saying, oh, you're a lecturer at the university. What are you going to do? So he could not explain it. But since I took the decision, they were very supportive. And that's how I started in 2000, about 20 years ago, with World Food Program as a program assistant uh, in my own country. Wonderful. And as you mentioned, you were working in your own country. So could you share a bit about perhaps the feelings or the the unique setting of actually working in your own country as opposed to later on when you were working in other countries? How was it to serve in Sudan specifically? I was born and raised in the capital of Sudan in Khartoum. And Sudan is a country, I think, that has been through civil war since independence. So we had war in the beginning at the southern part of the country that now has, with the independence of South Sudan, become a different country. And also we had a war in Darfur that started since 2003. And for me, the fact that I started to work in my own country with the World Food Program, because World Food Program had a huge program all over the country, first it gave me the opportunity to move out of Khartoum to different places in the country and to see for myself the impact of the war on the people and how people felt that in your own country and you are living in a war zone. And of course, I cannot compare my experience to the experience of the people because I would go on a field mission, I would spend a few days in the field and talk to the people. But you know, because sometimes when you are sitting in the capital and then there is a media having a certain narrative, when you go there yourself and talk to the people, actually gave me the credibility to say, no, I was there, I have seen with my own eyes, spoken with the people, and this is what's happening. So for me, it was very, also very sad to see how the impact of war on people and how people had to suffer and to lose everything. But also it gave me even more motivation and more sense of responsibility to try to contribute and also to be a voice and to talk to the other people that I'm saying, I'm saying, no, things are this way. So I think it was an eye-opener for me, I think except for my father, because at these days, the civil service would work at different parts of the country. Most of the people around me had not really gone very far outside the capital. So I think that was a huge privilege. And also it gave me this sense of responsibility to really talk about the narrative and also to try to do my best to try to contribute. So I was very, very grateful. And I think My experience with WFP in Sudan is the part of my career that I value the most. Mm, Very interesting. So in your career, you focused on humanitarian work, and one of your first experiences outside of Sudan was as humanitarian affairs officer with OCHA in Somalia. Could you say a bit more about what drew you specifically to working in humanitarian contexts or in in emergency contexts? the motivations behind working in that context specifically? My work, as I mentioned, in World Food Program. And so World Food Program, the work was largely a humanitarian response. They also had a bit of a recovery program. So I started with the Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in Somalia because I was also applying for international position at that time. And I think this was the opportunity that has come. But what also draws me to humanitarian action is that, first, you are very close to the people. And actually, when I started this work, even when I was in Somalia, we used to be very close to the people, visit the field regularly, listen from them directly. 
So that being very close to the people, it gave me a sense of reassurance of what you are doing is guided by the people. We always checking with them. As for example, now when I think of myself in New York, I miss that kind of feel of talking to the people because even when you're trying to advocate, having that direct touch is very important. And also you would be able to see the impact maybe on the short term. And I think that's, that doesn't mean like it's, it's wrong or right, but sometimes also I recall when I was in Somalia, we had this huge nutrition program and we used to go every week. The children would come, the Manorish children, and they would get sort of like what's called plumpy dose, like it's a fortified meal. And every day you see the same child, really life coming back into them, gaining weight and laughing. And, and that was also very, very much rewarding. And that commitment to working at more the community level and being able to really see the tangible impact of your work. In terms of your experiences, just generally, whether it was in Somalia or in other countries, what would you say are some of the, the challenges to having more community level, community led, participatory approaches embedded in the programs you've been with? What would you say are some of the barriers? The way I started, I think we, in a way, maybe lucky because the team and the leaders I worked with from the beginning, it was very clear to me that we are of service to the people. And that especially also when I moved to Somalia, I remember one of my bosses used to say, our bosses are the Somali people when we're working for Somali operation. And I think for me, the challenge is that we really have to, we, we say this, but I think there is a bit of a gap between saying that they are our bosses and our action and our decision making. I believe it is very, very, very important to be able to go to the people, to talk to them, to make their voice heard, and also to factor this in all we are doing. But one of the challenges is sometimes also, I found that we have this sort of like programs. We have certain services and the goods that we deliver. We work in a certain way. And so sometimes you go to a community and they would ask for something else, which is not in your package. And I think that's a challenge. It means that we have to really factor the opinion of the people in the design of our programs and to try to really go out of our sort of... We have to have some flexibility to address what is the priority for the people. And also, I think we're good at engaging the community, maybe in the level of risk assessment and also when we're doing monitoring, but not in every step in between, which also brings me something that I feel very strongly about. And I think now, even with the situation that we're seeing with the impact of the COVID-19, is the role of the local NGOs, because they are always there before the international actors come, they continue to be there. And they're also there when even some organization close their program and so on. So in a way, I also think they represent the community. In the humanitarian system, we've been talking about localization as part of the reform, as part of the investment, but I think we need to do better, not only to give the organization resources to implement things, but rather to empower them so that they can become self-sustainable, they can get their own resources, they can work in a more systematic way. And when it comes to building collaborations or partnerships, whether that's with local NGOs or perhaps government counterparts, what have been some of your experiences with navigating the power dynamics that exist in terms of everybody's agenda or their perspective and how to, you know, overcome any of the differences that sometimes come up. 
Maybe I can talk about the relationship with governments because, you know, the humanitarian mandate has come from General Assembly Resolution 4682, which also states that attempts of crisis or emergencies, the first responsibility is with the government and the government has to provide the people who are in need with protection, with services, and then the international system with the request from the government, they come in and they provide support in coordination with the government. So for me, I think I always find that we really have to work very closely with the government because we are in the support role and they are in the lead role. So I think this sort of like balance between who's supporting and who's in the lead role is very important. My experience has been sometimes when you work in like conflict settings, it's been a challenging relationship because you want to go to certain areas. Sometimes maybe you are not allowed. And sometimes also you have to as organization to make public statements to say, you know, to go to this area and so on. But I, what, what I found that was very good is that as long as you're also consistent and credible and transparent, then you will gain the trust of the government, even if they don't, would not, for example, agree or endorse everything. What I also got to know is that the government is not like one thing. You know, you cannot just, it's not like us and them. Even within the government, you have some actors that are more political, you have actors who are technical, and you have actors at the subnational level. So you also have to build relationship at all levels. And I found that there are always entry points where you are able to get allies to explain your point of view. And also, even if you, for example, to be very quite predictable. So I found that sometimes the government would say that if you have an issue, you are going to the donors before you are coming to us. And I think things like this should not happen. So if there is any issue, they should not be surprised because we are there to support them. And I find that if you're consistent and transparent in working with the government, you are able to get their trust and also try to find entry points. One challenge that we are facing now is that we have large number of crises that have been protracted and that they have been going on for 10 years, 15 years, even 20 years. And I found that for the humanitarian system, it's also very important to try as much as possible where feasible and where there is opportunity and where there is no harm and where you can reach the people to try to strengthen and to work with the government system. This way, gradually, you know, there will be more sustainability and support in that regard. You mentioned how in some countries there's protracted conflict or there are cycles of conflict. And you've had some experiences specifically where you worked in the same country twice or in different roles or with different agencies, I think in Somalia and Syria. Could you speak about that experience of leaving and coming back to a country in a different role or just having a different role in a context where you've been in before and what that has been like in terms of the work that you've done or your perspective about the fact that there are protracted conflicts or how that continues to unfold? In Syria, I worked first with Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. I was the deputy of the office and I believe in, in many settings when you want to make change, collective action, I think it's very important. So as OCHA, our role was to support bringing the organization together. One of the challenges that we were facing was because it was a country in conflict is to try to reach people. I mean, places where it's not easy to go there because, you know, some of these areas are under control of armed opposition groups. So you need to negotiate with them, you need to negotiate with the government because the government is also responsible for the people. and. I think one of the things was that it's very important to 
have collective action and also to be able to prioritize and to try to give the support as per the priority of the people. So I think that was what we were doing with OCHA. But when I moved to UNICEF, UNICEF has also been in the country with a smaller presence for over a longer period of time to advise the government, mainly at policy level, at quality support, but not at the level of service delivery, like providing service. And I think one of the challenges is that, for example, you had, while you know you had a, a country in conflict, you wanted to have a large-scale vaccination program. And this large vaccination program, you have a government system, like the technical level, the ministry, the health departments at the different level, at all the sub-levels are functioning. They have very capable people who are technical people. So the choice programmatically was to work with this system that is in all parts of the country, including in areas under control of the armed opposition group. We face criticism from some actors about how come you are using the government system, for example, to deliver vaccination programs. However, I think you have to think about what you're doing now and what you're doing in the long term. And as long as you have oversight of the vaccine going to the children, you're using technical people who are capable, who know the work, who has the baseline. This was our decision was that this is the right things to do. I think also when you are engaged in these settings, one lesson learned for me was about if there are institutions that are providing services, you have to see how you can work with them to make sure that there would be sort of like, you know, exit or system. I mean, you don't destroy a whole system of services, especially if it was working well. And also the other thing, when you have opportunity, even in fragile context, when you have opportunity to work at the local level and to empower the local actors, we have to do this. Otherwise, we will not get out of the protracted crisis. Also, in terms of protracted crisis, one of the challenges that when you are in conflict setting, in the past, we used to think of it as very linear. You know, you have emergency, you have recovery, you have development, but in reality, it doesn't work like this. And we know that we really, all of us have to work together at the same time whenever there's an opportunity to also address the longer term. And I think that's why in some places, we are not able to pull out or exit from the humanitarian response because the people still have no means to just to go on with their lives and to be able to access services and so on. You mentioned this nonlinear path or the fluctuation between emergency and non-emergency. When it comes to working at the level of policy and working at the level of political will and building political will, what have been some of the maybe strategies you've used to support the positions or argue for the positions that perhaps your organization is trying to put forth with a government counterpart or another partner? Have there been any tips or strategies that have helped you in terms of building that political support? I'll share with you my experience from Indonesia. I was responsible for two provinces called Papua and West Papua and in a city called Jayapura. And I think the government there, they were very rich in terms of resources. So our input was not really to provide financial resources, but to influence policy, to influence budgeting, allocation of budgets, and, and, and the kind of program by the government. We were working with the Department of Health, with water, with education, but maybe I'll give you an example from our work with the Department of Education. 
there was an issue of the community there where the density was not that very high. And so one of the approaches of trying to provide education support was in some of the remote villages to be able to have teachers and a curriculum where they can teach multiple different grades at the same time. So this was one example. And what we actually have done was that we took a number of schools and we sat with the community and with the government at the local level and we designed the program and we invested in this program and we were monitoring the program, the impact, the problem. And then at the end of the day, we presented this as an example to say, this is like a business case. You know, this is a way where things can be done to provide education in a way for that community. And I was very happy then because the government, when they had other donors coming to us for support, they called us for the meeting and they said, you know, UNICEF are our technical advisors and we have this model that we work collectively on. And then we would like you to replicate it in other areas. Maybe also to add that in that area, malaria was also a huge problem, especially for women who were pregnant, were particularly vulnerable. And so we had a program to support training of midwives on detecting and treating malaria in pregnancy. We had the curriculum and everything. And rather than saying, okay, we're going to train midwives this year and repeat the training, we had a partnership with the institute that was responsible for training of midwives and it became part of the curriculum. So there was a number of steps and then they adopted this approach as part of their curriculum. So every midwife that has to be graduated will go to the school. She will be trained and part of the training will be how to address malaria among pregnant women. And I think these are a couple of examples where it shows that you can work to leave an impact that is more systematic, where then the government are putting their own resources and scaling things up. This brings me to the point that sometimes people think that the role of the UN is to provide services. And in my view, I think maybe our largest role is to be, uh, I think, okay, we have the convener role, but also to be the technical advisor where you can provide a business case. Because, you know, to influence policy, you need to provide some sort of evidence. Why would they adopt this policy if it is not cost-effective, if it is not proven? And I think that was a very good approach and it was very, very rewarding because we invested a small amount of money for a government that had huge resources for these services, yet they were able to adopt this and to, to make significant change. Mm-hmm. In some situations where you've worked in a country or a context where there is some internal political issue, how has it been to try to maintain a sense of neutrality or maintain a a non-political stance while still trying to work in a context that is facing political issues or tensions? When you read the texts and the principles, I think I also, early on, I benefited from training on the humanitarian principles, which, you know, human suffering should be addressed where it is, neutrality, that you don't take sides, and also impartiality, that systems should be only based on need and not, for example, by political motivation and so on. But I think in reality, my personal experience has been, this is also quite challenging. What makes it challenging is that the UN have different halves. So maybe I'll give you an example, not to speak abstract. In Somalia, I think the needs were 
quite severe because we had a very bad drought in 2006 that, that time. And also there was a huge malnutrition among children in different parts of the country. And there was a transitional government, but at the same time, there were some groups that were extremist groups fighting with the government. And so for you to try to maintain the humanitarian space, which is that, you know, we are only there to provide life-saving assistance to the people and to keep that distinction for the humanitarian action, in reality, in some context has been a challenge. But I think the way we try to manage it, I think to be very, very transparent with the government and to explain to them that, you know, as humanitarian actors, what we are doing why there are certain things, for example, that we cannot do. I recall there was one time we stopped some of the support to some of the ministries. So you have to have this balance to be able to speak to all actors. You have to stick to the principles, but at the same time, you have to also be transparent and engage with the government because at the end of the day, the government is responsible. I think I found that when you are in this complex situation and when you are trying to make decisions, it is quite complex. And I think maybe the good way that we were trying to do is that it's not one person who's making a decision. You come as a team and try to have a discussion and also to look at what is likely to happen if we do this. We have a saying that to be guided by the best interest of children, to be guided by the best interest of the people. So these decisions are quite complex in reality, but I found transparency and consistency with all the actors is what has, has been our approach. But I have to say there's many times when you really come to make difficult decisions when you are in those contexts. You mentioned the importance of transparency. As you've progressed and taken on senior roles or positions of leadership, how has it been to be responsible for perhaps processes of accountability and transparency? Or have you ever had the experiences or challenges of facing maybe a, a case of abuse of authority or mismanagement? Have you had to face those type of situations? I was working in Pakistan and we had a challenge with one of our partners. And there was a case that we had to investigate dealing with the partner. And the partners were very well connected at the local level, and they were trying to really influence the decisions by the organization and try to use their, you know, network and to try to sort of like question the process, the credibility of the process and so on. While we know that we have followed a very thorough process on that. And I think the organization was saying in terms of like, you know, there would be zero tolerance for fraud for the organization, for the partners of the organization and so on. So we had to make a decision and I was responsible for that area as the most senior person responsible for that geographical region where we had this problem. So I had to advise my management on what decisions and what action to take. And I thought about it and I think I was very clear that we have to, because we told our partners that if we find cases of fraud, we are going to terminate the agreement. And I took that decision and I advised the management and I think we were having discussions and I also tried to explain to other of my colleagues in the senior team why we should go through that path because we had an issue of insecurity so we we're not able to have good access to all the areas. You know, it's very common. It's not just limited to this context. In many contexts where 
you are not able to have regular access, you could have this risk of fraud. But I think I also wanted to set an example to the team that when we say something about the principles, we act on it. And I knew that it's going to be a difficult position because then I ended up faced challenges with the partners because these partners mobilized, accusing me personally. But I think eventually at the end of the day, it was the right thing to do. We have sent a clear message to all the partners that, you know, when we say zero tolerance, then there is zero tolerance. The thing is that when you come to principled action, if a time comes and then you don't act on what we say is important, despite it being difficult. And I think people, as they say, they, they really listen to your actions rather than our words. And I think this is one of the examples that was very important for us to set this. For me also, how do you have a systemic response to address this kind of risk? So, for example, at this case, we had the risk of fraud in using the resources. And I think one of the things, it is not done only in that place, but there was this shift, what we call an approach where rather than you give a partner resources for a specific activity, they do the proposal, you do the monitoring, you rather assess them and look at where are their gaps in terms of the organization. Do they have checks and balances to make sure that it's not the same person who's buying, who's signing? Do they get audited? And we started also investing in working with the partners to put the systems in place because we also want the partners to have capacity to work with transparency to work with credibility and to deliver to the people and you say you know the importance of principled action and really walking the talk implementing the zero tolerance policies that are spoken about even though there is sometimes you know negative pushback as you say you experience some personal attacks based on that decision Could you speak a little bit about your experiences when it comes to perhaps being a woman in a position of leadership or being a Sudanese woman or, you know, making that transition from being a national staff member to international staff member? What have been some of your experiences in terms of how your identity has influenced the work that you do? Thank you so much, Safa. I think this is an interesting question for me. I think I came across this different treatment between national staff and international staff by my experience in Sudan. And I recall in the beginning, on those days, this has changed now, but on those days, you would go on a field trip, like, you know, we travel out of the capital to a location in the field with your international colleagues. And you get like an allowance for every day you are outside of your capital because you have to find to rent a place and to eat and things like this. But we were not paid the same rate. So if you are national, you are paid a certain rate. And if you are international, you are paid a different rate. And I think at those days, while on many times we would be staying, unless you have family in that area, you would be staying maybe in the same guest house or hotel and things like that. So I was like always asking, why is this? Why is that? I had this experience. And then when we moved to Somalia, I think it struck me because at that time, I was based mainly in Somalia itself in the field. And we had a very high level of insecurity. Uh, We had lost colleagues, actually, when I was there. Some of our colleagues were actually killed. So it was quite difficult. You know, somebody was with you in the office to be attacked by someone in the street and shot at. So it was highly insecure. Yet at that time also, the level of insecurity was quite high that the sort of like the assessment was that we have to try to maintain these programs because if this program, especially if you have a nutrition program, if you have 
program that is supporting water. These are really very, very important programs in the sense of life saving. And especially I'm talking about the supporting vaccination together with the World Health Organization and nutrition programs. But then whenever an incident happens and they were like, you know, people were kidnapped because of the international staff, we were asked, like, you know, to say, oh, the international staff, you have to leave. And the national staff will continue to do the work and you can support them remotely. And many offices have back offices in Nairobi. But then this actually troubled me a lot personally because I'll talk to my national colleagues. And first, for them, they had a sense that whenever the international staff go, it means things get very worse. If something happens to them, nobody will be able to sort of like follow up and negotiate or to release the staff. And also, I think with some of the colleagues who started looking at the data, and when you look at the data, you find the incidents of those who are most affected by kidnapping or attacks or incident at their houses were actually the national staff. So that response was based on, I think it's coming from a good place that, that the national staff have the protection of their community. They know the area, they know where to go, they know what to do, but as international, you, you are more vulnerable. But this is not really what has been happening in reality because you know, we have the guest houses, we have security. So I think we really have to act based on a sharp understanding of the risk. And I think we used to have those discussions and we started, you of us, and saying, you know what? No, we are not going to be evacuated. Yes, we will reduce the number because if a problem happens, then you don't want to have a very large number of people where you cannot move them out in a plane or in a car. But we want to make sure that at all times there should be some international staff staying. And I think also there were security allowance for the international staff, but not for the national staff. And I think my head of organization at that time really made the case. So all the agencies start giving the national staff like allowance so that in your house, you can make some reinforcement. If you have glass, you can put some protecting sheet so that the glass would not shatter on you. And these things were not done before. I'm talking about more than 15, 16 years. I think things have improved now. But this was quite stark at that time in terms of the different treatment of national staff, international staff. I also think that we have to think whenever we have capacity in national staff, we have many very, very capable national staff. And I think also so that even the structure of the organization, they really have to have a more senior position, is more effective in the programming, they know the country. Of course, you have to make sure also that you have like, you know, a balanced approach in terms of using the office. So I think this has been for me very important and the have that balance between the international and the national staff. We are, you know, you work outside your country, you work in your country, but we are both international civil servants. And one thing also, maybe to mention briefly, is that we also have this system where the international staff who are away from their families, and the families cannot join them because the place is not secure, they would be given like a break of maybe every six weeks, to be given five days to visit family and come back. And this is was like a compulsory break on top of your annual leave. But then also we were in some very critical situations where we had national staff who were recruited not from the community. And because of the requirements of the work, they were required to stay and work and work throughout the weekend without any break. And so I think there was some policy taken by managers is that you staff to take what was called then compressed time off so that when they do maybe two months, they could also be given uh, a break. 
So there was discussion even how could these things become a policy because at the end of the day, your response as an organization with the duty of care to your staff or their security should be based on the risk and the need and not just this blank international and national staff. You bring up so many important examples and points when it comes to the, the differential treatment. But when you think about how maybe things have changed or not changed or the ways in which these conversations are happening with management or amongst staff members, do you see these conversations happening or have you been part of addressing these issues in terms of the places you've worked in? Or do you still think it's overlooked or not discussed enough or not a priority enough issue in terms of addressing it? I think, to be honest, I'm, I was very pleased, like since my start as a program assistant to where I am now, I think there is significant improvement. I think the realization not only is the right thing to do, but also the effective thing to do. And I think also in many countries, we found the national staff at the bone of the operations because they are there, they have institutional memory, they know the context. But I think also within that, we have to be conscious to bring also the diversity, even among the national staff, to make sure that we also have female representation in the office space, in different roles, if the country also has the groups with different experiences, just to make sure that you are true to the sense of diversity. Once the competence or the qualification is assured across all people, then you also have to make sure that you have that diversity. I think also it's about making sure that the national staff have a voice in terms of like their management, that you know every organization, or every team, they would have a management team. The good thing that I also appreciate is that the decision-making mechanisms that where you have a leader who have to make a decision or whereas I was responsible, for example, as the chief of field office to make decisions and to be accountable for it, you have to have a consultative mechanism and you have to have a team where you discuss things with your staff. And I think really there is a voice now for the national colleagues and there is a recognition for their role and there's a lot of good practices in place. So I definitely think that good progress has been made over the years on these issues. Now, there are a lot of conversations happening about systemic racism or white supremacy culture in a lot of organizations. In the countries you've worked in or the organizations, have you seen critical conversations happening around this issue or ways in which people are addressing these issues? Yes, I think one of the things that we have been discussing for quite some time now is the issue of inclusion and diversity. I'm starting by in the workforce, because I think my experience is that we have made a lot of progress in terms of having more female representation, including some of the more senior roles. I think we still have to do more in terms of having more females at the senior role, but also in terms of diversity to really make sure that your team, because, you know, as, the, as we work for the United Nations, you are representing the 193 member states. So I think there's a lot of discussion in terms of addressing diversity and also statistics are being provided in terms of are we diverse enough team? I think the next step would also be that I think it's still work in progress, that the culture of the organization itself has to also reflect this diversity. So for example, who's a successful employer in your organization? Is it someone who's, for example, a native English speaker who can write very well in English while maybe somebody else who could be maybe not as good in writing in English, but who's very good in partnership building. And you need all these kind of skill sets. I always believe that everybody brings their own niche. 
depending on their experiences and background. And I think we could do more about managing diversity better. I personally, as a manager of the sea, I need to do better. I've been trying also to read. And how can we manage diversity better so that the culture itself, the way things are being done, the way people are being assessed, raising the issue of uh, racism, and how can we address this issue and how to create safe space so that people can speak about their experiences. Mm-hmm. And the UN reform processes that are happening, could you speak to us a bit about that process and maybe the priorities within that? But also, I guess, the challenges when it comes to such a big bureaucracy, every agency, of course, has their own, but in terms of shifting work culture in such a big, overwhelming bureaucracy, what is that like? So the UN reform has three pillars, and I think it's very good because The pillars of the UN reform, and I will come to them, are things that can be done by the UN internally. So it's decisions that they don't necessarily have to be negotiated with all the member states, but they are decisions that will make the UN work more effectively. And one of them is the reform for the peace and the security. And the UN has a pillar that works on like conflict prevention, peace building, so this is more like the political part. And then you also have a division that was working on peacekeeping operations, where you deploy peacekeeping operations at the geographic locations or places or countries where you have conflict. So the first part is to really to bring this together and to make sure there's also more investment in the political engagement to create peace and to address conflict and the root cause of conflict. And so that these departments will work very closely together as part of the reform. And the second part of the reform is about the management of the reform. And I think one of the things that I feel closely about because I've been closer to the field is to decentralize decision-making close to the field location so that the people are in the field, delegated from the headquarters. You don't have to go to headquarters for everything to make decisions, for example, about procurements at your office and so on. Because one of the challenges has been is that these things take a lot of time. There are opportunities that we can do things on the field more effectively and more efficient. So this is one just of the element of the reform. And the last part is the development system reform, whereby, you know, in every country we have a team from the UN agencies, we will call them UN country teams. And these UN country teams are usually led by a senior UN official. He represents like basically the, the secretary general in that given country. And his role is the resident coordinator. And in places where you have large, maybe emergency or humanitarian response, many times it's also be designated as a humanitarian coordinator. And in the past, before the reform, the head of UNDP was playing the role also of the resident coordinator. And I think with the reform, these roles were delinked. So you have a resident coordinator who is fully dedicated to coordinate the work of the United Nations. I think also the offices of this resident coordinator, they would have like a team with very critical skills in terms of also really improving our analysis, our understanding of the situation to be able also to support the government better. And also we should not have like a cookie cutter approach whereby every country would have the same. So, so all the UN agencies would be the same in every country, but the way we work has to be cost-effective And it has to match the priorities of that specific government. And this would also help us to sort of like accelerate the sustainable development goals. 
And I think I have worked with a coordinating agency. I have worked with an agency that have a specific mandate. And I think sometimes you have this challenge between the, the collective mandate and the mandate of the respective agency. But I think for me, it's a win-win situation. So the resident coordinator could be in a place where you really bring all actors to the table, that you are also supporting them, that you are empowering them. I have seen it work quite well. So I think this is this is in the making, you know, this is, I think, the first year in the implementation of the, for example, the resident coordinator system of the reform. And I always try to bring people to think not of our sort of like mandate, but priorities of the government, priorities of the people, what can we do collectively? And I believe even in context, my experience have been when we had challenges either to get access or to negotiate with partners, with government. The more I was in teams that they, they, the collective worked better, the more effective we were. And I think this is something that's um, very, very important and I feel strongly about. Yes, as you say, the more we work collectively, the better it can be. Would you say that over the years, your motivations have changed in any way? Or how do you think about the work that you do now, perhaps as compared to when you first started and just the impact of the international development and humanitarian aid sector? I've always been motivated suffer by trying to be of service. This has been a huge motivation for me. And one of my favorite quotes is from a poem by a, the poet Paul Pryor. He used to say, remember. You are only one, but you are one. You cannot do everything, but you can do something. And I think sometimes we can really be overwhelmed by the crisis that we see, by the scale of things, and we think we cannot really make a difference. But I really believe in the collectively, the community work, that people come together, everybody can contribute something, and then together do something big. So that has been my motivation. But I think now, having worked, you know, these years, and I'm very grateful for all the privilege and the opportunity, not only to have a job, but also to work in a job that I find huge satisfaction. I think also I really want to try to use my experiences and to advance certain things that I see that would really help the system work much better. And one of these things is really to support localization, to support local actors. I think I mentioned earlier, not only for them to receive resources to do services, but to really have a voice to be able to stand their feet, to work as sustainable organization, and to be able to have at least their core staffing, because I think it will become cost-effective. It will also be in terms of programming, more effective. And we have seen this when we invest in this, it happens more and more. So this is for me really one of the areas that I really want to support, invest, advocate on, on that regard. I think also I really see our role, not just, of course, the government, where they support the government in the first place, and that's very important, but I think we need to broaden our partnership. I've seen over the years, there are huge potential by bringing other partners to the table. I gave you an example earlier on from working with academia. Also, the civil society actors, many of them, you know, they are engaged, they are doing their own work. We need to bring them to the table, especially in areas when we are doing work on advocacy. The private sector, I think the private sector, especially maybe people think that the private sector should not be the answer, but the private sector, 
I found that in urban settings, they have social corporate responsibility and you can engage with them and they'll be able to make a difference to the people. And I always found that also this room for there are many sort of now uh, young people that we have technology, they're having this innovation labs. So for example, even like in Sudan, one of the countries that I am also supporting, when the COVID-19 impact has happened and there was some restriction of, for example, markets and so on. So there is this innovation hub that just has opened it in social media for use to come up with solutions for what else can women who are working in the informal sector do to gain an income. And, you know, people would come up with ideas and to say how maybe they can form a market in a different way. And I think also having more room for people to bring innovation because I think innovation and research and new ideas are also part of the resources for us to solve the problem and we should not only focus on the financial aspect. So these are some of the things that I am trying now to promote and I will continue to support in my work. Sometimes change, as you say, it doesn't happen in a linear way. Some things change, but then they regress and then they change again. How have you been able to kind of navigate or respond or deal with systemic change, maybe taking more time than perhaps we would like? So I think the thing is that, you know, when you work, you can deliver a certain service. You know, you can build an institution, a hospital, or you can um, train people, give them new skills. But if you want to change behavior of people or action of people in a given kind of area, I think it's understood that this requires really a lot of investment. I would give you, for example, from Sudan about female gentle mutilation. And I think this is something that has been, in my own country, very prevalent, uh, with estimation that over the past years, I don't know the exact figure now, but it's more than maybe 95% uh, of girls would undergo this female gentle cutting or mutilation. And there are different forms of it in the extreme one, which is maybe not in the capital, but maybe in some of the other areas, is that the impact could be in terms of psychological impact, health impact, could be quite devastating, even putting the lives of girls and, and women at risk. And I think since I was in Sudan, until only this year, the legislation to sort of ban FGM has been finally approved at all levels of the government. So this is like, you could imagine this has started for how many years there have been a large number of people, activists, social workers, development workers working on this issue. And I think the point is that you really have to have patience, you have to have persistence, you have to have alliances, and you have to understand why people do this. And I think sometimes people think, okay, because it is a cultural thing, you have many societies where the people have to conform. Like even, for example, if my mother would believe it is not the right thing to do, but what about what will the people in the neighborhood say and so on? For some people, it's actually a business, you know, it's a source of living. So then you really have to not to give into frustration, but also to accelerate things, which means really having persistence and having alliances and having people who are quite dedicated to make this kind of changes in the society where things that have been done for so many years. Mm -hmm. 
Sometimes on the podcast, we talk about the difference between addressing symptoms of a problem and addressing the root causes. Do you find that that kind of deeper analysis or that type of thinking about, okay, what are actually root causes? Do you think that's really happening enough at the level of development work? Maybe not so much humanitarian responses, but more so in the development work? Absolutely, because I think we have now many contexts where that if, for example, you are in a country where you have new conflict, new crisis, or the global number of people you are in need are increasing beyond the capacity of the system, so that the system can stretch so much. I think even over the past year, there have been this discussion, you know, you cannot just keep on adding, you know, new crisis and so on. So you really have to understand the root causes and to really make a call to say, you know what? other actors is to step in and to address the root causes. I would say there was a lot of significant improvement in refining the analysis. So as you mentioned, there are the symptoms, but why are this happening? Why they're not going away? Who needs to do what? What are the systemic changes that are required? So I think this is happening increasingly, taking place in terms of trying to really address the root causes of problems. And I think also now there is a lot of focus on improving the analysis. What I would say is that we have to also now make sure that because situations are changing so rapidly and we have to, from the development side also, to try to support, for example, the national system for statistics because otherwise my sense is that sometimes the efforts could be scattered. So different actors, you know, the UN from the development side, they have the common country assessment which is so huge, it's for the whole country. It takes such a long time by the time it's finalized some things have changed. While I think also the more we embed this into the government systems and also have systems in place that will establish the root causes, but to be able to, on very agile ways, to try to update this. So definitely there is a lot of attention on addressing the root causes and really telling the story about what is it, why is this happening, and so on. But I think as much as this is important, it's also important in any analysis, including from the root causes, to try to understand the, um, the use of the people themselves. I think for me, this is something I also believe strongly about in any analysis, whether from the development or from the, the humanitarian, the voice of the people, what do they want, what are their priorities, what they can bring. I think this is something very, very important and we can do much better on that. Mm -hmm. Do you think about perhaps working in Sudan again or what are your feelings after having worked internationally for so long about perhaps working in your home country? Yes, I'm thinking about that. And actually, I spent the first six months of this year in Sudan because the government actually of Sudan has asked the United Nations to deploy some capacity to support them. And you know, maybe that Sudan is going to a transitional government now. And I worked in Sudan for six months with the ministry just to provide them with advice and so on. So it has really helped me to understand, for example, the challenges and the opportunities and how the government system works and so on. So I think this was very, very rewarding to see the capacities in country huh, of young people, amazing young people, the way that they're doing, the way that they're organizing, and so on. I've thought about also going back and working in my own country and contributing to working in my own country. So I've been thinking also about, I'm actually thinking about maybe I would retire early from the system and go back and try to contribute my, my experiences. But I was also, to be honest, came back to the sense of humility because I think there are so many people from different, different walks of life, whether from the civil society 
or the academia or even the young people with amazing skills, ideas, competence. And I think also for me, I take with me a lot of humility whenever I'm reaching out to other actors to engage and what I bring on the table. So this was also a very eye-opener for me. Yes, well, whatever the journey takes you, we wish you all the best. And thank you so much for speaking with us and sharing your thoughts. Thank you so much. I thank you for first for doing what you are doing, Safa. I really appreciate and I could sense your commitment to these issues. So I want to say a huge thank you for the opportunity to talk to you. I think we had a good discussion and thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you also to our listeners. We invite you to join in on the conversation. You can do this in a couple of different ways. Number one, you can send us a short voice message sharing one specific ethical issue you face in your work. You can visit our website and hit the send us a voice message button for more details. Or number two, you can email us a short letter to your younger self sharing what you wish you had known when you first started working in this sector or tips about some of the things you have learned over the years. You can also keep up to date with our latest episodes and offerings by signing up for our newsletter, listening and subscribing to our podcast on your preferred podcast player, and following us on social media. On our website, you can also find a donation link where you can choose either a one-time donation or reoccurring monthly donation option to help us cover our production costs. Thank you again for tuning in. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all next time. Until then, take care.